you can you can definitely feel some of the similarities what I like about this piece is it's very much about like talking to people who don't give a crap about these issues or are actually very antagonistic towards these issues You're also welcome to come on up over here. So the microphones are so that everything that we say goes straight to Donald Trump's Twitter device. <laughs> so that whatever we say, if we talk if we talk bad about him, he can tweet it out immediately. the readings I think we should focus on the James Baldwin one because that's a it's got some nice sentiment in it I think the I mean I like the Martin Luther King Jr. piece and mm -hmm. definitely makes me wish that MLK was my pastor <laughs> <laughs> but uh, from the Baldwin piece I do like it's just very relevant in terms of uh, dealing with issues of double consciousness, um, internalized oppression. And even though the African-American experience is different than the Chamorro experience, there, are, there is quite a bit of overlap. of James Baldwin's writings that I bought when I was like 15 and I've never read. It's a, it's a good, I mean, it's a good place to start. There is a, a documentary, or a, it's kind of a pseudo-documentary that came out last year, I believe. I Am No Negro, or I Have the Book I Don't. What's that called? filming from right there. Yeah. <sighs> how has your, your in, how have your interviews been going? Um, they've been going well. I actually spoke to the chair and vice chair for statehood the other mm. day, which was interesting. It was more so reading of their pamphlet and their website. That is. So that was, um, I don't know, I guess I wasn't expecting to get too much um, out 
It is a, it's, it's a very strange thing because, you know, s selling statehood in Guam is like selling life preservers to drowning people. Yeah. Like, it, it's, it's really quite easy, for, not for good reasons. It's just, it's kind of like people, and not just Chamorros, but people in general will tend to feel like America's the greatest country in the world, so it, more America always means better, right? right? So, and they'll, they'll think about that in various ways the way that English is spoken, sort of the way that economics, education, sort of all of these things, the way it works, that whatever the example is, we should match up to it. Yeah. But then for those guys, like they don't understand that they actually like drive people away from statehood because they can't really answer questions. They, they don't know how to talk to people. They just read, read their pamphlet. Yeah, and I think also you know, talking to people like yourself and people who represent the other um, political statuses, um, they all, like, agree that any of the statuses are better than status quo right now. And they recognize the other statuses, but when I was talking to um, the chair and the vice chair, I can't quote anything that they say in regards to your movement or free association because they just say, oh, it's mumbo jumbo. And that's not, or like, it's not valid. And I'm like, obviously it's valid because there's a, like, there's a task force for each one of the Oh, yeah. No so one. So it doesn't, it's kind of frustrating. Like, I didn't know how to navigate the conversations with them. It's hard because it's, it's just based on, like, um, dismissiveness deriving from dependency. So it's just like, I don't feel like anything is possible, so I'm just gonna dismiss it and kind of shut it down. Yeah, like any other time I try to approach a different perspective, like they just knocked it off, and so it was kind of hard to, to get an honest answer, I think, from them. Yeah, and, and that's, but anyways, wait, are we, are we doing this? What's going on? Oh yeah, wait, I, I paused. Yeah, so I'll resume recording. We're good, we are recording on, okay, all right. All right, buenas, everybody. Okay, so this is going to be the last radical reading group because we have to figure out a new time because I have a class at seven <laughs> with the semester starting, but we can totally figure out a new time. We need to just uh, adjust everything. Um, but I definitely think it's worth it to, to keep it going, um, just to, to keep, and it's, and the thing is, for me, I, I enjoy it because we, we look back at things that I've read in the past or I get the chance to, to read things I've wanted to read for a while, but I know that for others it's also good because it's a way of expanding what you know, maybe making some connections that sometimes they are connections that you hadn't even thought about. Sometimes they're connections which you could kind of feel but you weren't sure yet about how to articulate. And so, but thank you for those who have been joining us on this journey. Um, those of you who are, and those of you who are Patreon supporters and get to, and get to look at me with my farmer's tan while I, while I talk about these things and while others talk about these things. But, um, so for the last, for the last reading today, we were going to talk about black nationalism, and I think what I would like for us to do is to focus on My Dungeon Shook by James Baldwin. It's a quick read. Other readings were Beyond Vietnam by MLK, and then What Does, what Does July 4th Mean to a Slave by Frederick Douglass. But I think that there's enough stuff in Baldwin's My Dungeon Shook for us to really unpack, um, because the writing is, is very beautiful at times. You can feel a lot of emotion. You can feel a lot of passion in it. And there's so many ways in which we can connect the Chamorro experience, the Guam experience, the minority within a US context uh, experience to sort of what he's saying in this letter written to his nephew. And so let's Let's get started here. Now, had any of you read anything by James Baldwin before? Or? No, now, just to be clear, he is not one of the quote-unquote Baldwin brothers. So he's not. 
Mm, no, he's not. Uh, they may be. We could basic. We could do sort of the reverse racist thing and assume that all Baldwins are closely related to each other. The way that. So who are the Baldwin brothers? Or the, you know Alec Baldwin, and then there's the really conservative Baldwin. What is the? There's like. I don't even know the other one's names. Stephen Baldwin. Stephen Baldwin. There's Alec oh, yeah, Baldwin, there's Stephen Baldwin, and then there's the one that was in the movie with Cindy Crawford Baldwin. And then there's another <laughs> one that I can't, I can't even remember what his face is. I just know he exists. There's at least four, I think. Oh, okay. but, um, but anyways, no, this is the best Baldwin. And so, uh, African-American writer, and for those of you that are listening, and if you're familiar with Julian Uggen, human rights attorney and uh, Chamorro author, he has, he has three books that he's published. <laughs> that was cool. It, it, it sounded. Is it Julian? Julian? Is Julian calling? But so he's got uh, three books. The first one is Just Left of the Setting Sun. The third one is What We Bury at Night. And then the second one is named in honor of James Baldwin's collection. It is The Fire This Time. Baldwin's collection is The Fire Next Time. And so, to give you kind of a little bit of background. Now, we should kind of start this off because it is sort of the week of Martin Luther King and commemorations around his legacy. And of course, some people are upset because Donald Trump was golfing on MLK Day, whereas previous presidents would kind of do something that was meaningful because the, the family of Martin Luther King sort of made it clear that they felt that the best way to honor their, their father or their relatives or legacy was to give to the community to do acts of service in the community, which is why Obama went to a soup kitchen and then sometimes they would read for children, um, you know, give a speech about race relations. And of course, Donald Trump being sort of the, the man of, of, of true racial intelligence, man who sort of really knows race relations like no other, and if you've heard him, is, is the least racist person in the world, Donald Trump golfed. <laughs> because, I mean, what, what way to give back to the community and, and sort of Martin Luther King Jr., who, who worked tirelessly for civil rights, you know that maybe on his, when he was lay, when he lay dying after being shot, he was like, I hope one day a fat, rich, white dude is president and he golfs in honor of me. And he's gone. Matai. Those could have been his final words, we don't really know. I mean, if you listen to Fox News, those probably were his final words. <laughs> but um, what is your, so this is an interesting sort of question, and how do we relate to African-American politics being from Guam, right? Because some of you may have heard this before, I hear it every semester, the notion that Guam isn't racist because there's no black people here or Guam isn't racist like the way the United States is racist because the United States, because if you think about it and you, if you go through your average public school system on Guam, you hear that these black people were enslaved and you think, man, the United States is fucked up, man, they're so bad. But you're, you're not learning the larger lesson of what racism is. You're not learning the larger lesson of what obligations people have to sort of not develop institutions and systems of oppression, right? So that by the time they come to sit in like a class of mine at UOG, these students are like, they don't make the connection that perhaps what they say about a Chuki student, for example, is very similar to what they would then complain that Donald Trump is saying about black people. Like they don't make that connection because their understanding of racism and how it works is too much out of the book to the point where they assume that whatever this stuff is, it comes from the states and it's in the states. So what is your just, your understanding or your connection sort of about civil rights movements, African-American politics and so on? Are you all lives matter people? Okay. How's it for that now? Okay, I'll start. So, um, 
I guess growing up, you know, my, my idea of activism was very much shaped by, um, you know, the Black Panthers and um, just uh, the, the, the visuals, the, um, the, the superficial um, aspects of, uh, of black activism. And um, so, yeah, that, that's my earliest uh, uh, notions of what, uh, of what black activism was. And perhaps it has also shaped uh, my, my conception of what um, I should be doing uh, or what activism here on Guam should be also. Um, let's see. I, uh, there, there's so much to, to talk about. Uh, maybe we'll get into it later tonight, but uh, what I wanna share um, to start is that uh, we were watching Selma um, a couple days ago because it was, it was on TV obviously because of Martin Luther King Jr. Um, and uh, I, I recently had an argument or maybe, okay, a discussion with uh, one of my cousins who uh, those of you listening uh, are probably very familiar with uh, this cousin by now. But um, th this is a guy who, uh, he's a, a gay Chamorro male who um, uh, contests the idea of independence and decolonization. And he's someone who uh, just recently has said, uh, I can't see any way that decolonization has affected my life. Um, the same person now, while we were watching Selma, we were watching uh, um, uh, African-Americans being uh, uh, beaten uh, with nightclubs, or not nightclubs, but um, what are those called? Nightsticks. Nightsticks, um, you know, by, by white police officers. Uh, this is a, a man who was, who was enthralled watching this movie. And, uh, you know, he, his gaze was, uh, for once, away from his phone. Um, and, uh, you know, we were all watching Selma together. And, you know, you can see there how um, there is this, this disconnect between uh, his, his experience as an indigenous person in, um, in a colony and, um, you know, what his perception of oppression is, you know, and um, it being categorized or uh, it being uh, characterized by uh, the oppression that um, African-Americans faced, you know, in the 50s and 60s and, you know, obviously even today, so. Yeah, I mean, for me, like my first experience was some initial understanding of, of uh, you know, I guess the textbook of what uh, what's uh, racism is Forrest Gump, you know. So you kind of <laughs> see that, kind of have the that theatrical kind of Disney thing. Okay, you have the the all powerful like government, what you know, how, how they, and then you have these uh, rebels, you know, and how that's basically what that portrayal is. But then you know. Um, I think it it doesn't get deeper than that, and and I think um, that can be um, compared to how you know uh, how people, especially the students, are educated uh, what racism racism uh, is, and um, like uh, you were saying earlier, like there's no connection between uh, there's sort of that that disconnect between uh, um, you know. Uh, the term like uh, how you can compare with a uh, Micronesian, you know, and how how's, how is that used? And um, so I feel that uh, that we need to, I guess, kind of kind of draw connections and how we can, I guess, uh, see the how these certain experiences connect especially during, you know, like the Vietnam War, right? So we, um, I just, you know, um, was watching a, a movie called The Post and I was kind of connecting um, how, uh, you know, we have those experiences, those wartime experiences with, uh, you know, those uh, same uh, individuals. So um, if we can further, you know, uh, Connected in that way, then it could, you know, could be more beneficial, you know, instead of just like, this is, it's racism is between white and blacks, and that's it, you know, it's more than that. Um, living on Guam, I can't really say that I've ever felt like I've been a victim of racism personally, because, well, I mean, there have been a couple instances, but never anything that I ever really recognized as like racism directed towards me. 
but I've kind of been thinking about this lately, um, just around a lot of my friends who are from the outer islands in the FSM, and like, you know, you never really think about it in terms of like systemic racism, but like I've, they've told me stories about like themselves and their interactions with the police mm -hmm. that have been like really bad, like they've told like really bad things. And what's interesting is my dad actually worked at DYA for a really long time and like I think about like at a given at any given time he said something like 80% of their prison population is from the FSM which is crazy considering like what are they as a percentage of Guam like a demographic of Guam uh, so yeah I really mostly just racism towards you know especially people from the FSM Chuck in particular and that you know you never really think about how that is you know, racism or like you you know you talk about like how the compact impact is like members of my family talk about how like the compact impact is the worst thing on the planet and I mean you interact with these people on a daily basis and you kind of don't really treat them you know you don't you're not like calling them racial slurs or anything but it's kind of like you know the way that you interact with them and kind of the way I get the sense that we all kind of understand they understand, you know, my coworkers and the people that I interact with. Because, like, this dude, I, I drive around. I'm a delivery driver. I deliver jungle juice all day. And my coworker, Richie, is Chuggies. And you can kind of get the sense that, like, people treat him in a different way than they treat me. And I feel, you know, and you get this sense that, like, especially if they're, like, Chamorro or Filipino or something, like, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's subtle. But it, it's, like, very noticeable. And no one ever really says anything about it. And I feel like that's racism that goes, it's, I don't know, it's strange. It's hard to feel in the face of that, like we are somehow like oppressed or have ever been wronged, you know? Because if you look at something like, you know, black folks in the, in the mainland United States and the problems that they deal with, it seems so much worse and more like in your face than the issues that we deal with, which just can kind of like, you know, they sink into the background and how many people, how many locals just feel like, we have nothing to be complaining about, like, why are you upset? There's nothing wrong, like, we should be happy. God bless the United States, which is strange. <laughs> you know, and it, you can't, it's hard to feel bad about anything. Um, if I think about, I guess, my first few interactions with, you know, thinking about racism, Obviously, there's the, the stereotypes and the prejudice against people from the FSM, and you kind of grow up, especially through the public school system, like you said, um, so far removed learning in your history classes about slavery and just thinking, oh, it is, like, it's black and white, and so it's not applicable to people here. But then, you know, after class, you'll go during break, and you'll see how people from FSM are treated just based off of, you know, very surface-level things like the way they look or their accent or the fact that maybe they don't speak English as well. And also another thing is I, that I, I realized, I think sometime in high school, I, um, uh, most of my friends are Filipino, but in terms of their complexion, like they're, they have vast uh, skin colors. And so a lot of the time I would hear them talk kind of conversationally about how they use all of these like whitening products um, because they, they feel that they're too dark. And I'm like, you, you're not too dark. What are you talking about? And they say, well, you don't understand. And I'm like, I don't, well, I mean, I guess not, because I'm, you know, I'm not Filipino for one, and also I'm pretty white as they mm -hmm. come, I guess. Um, so I asked them, I was like, well, what do you mean? Why do you want to be, why do you want to have lighter skin? Or, you know, every time I want to go outside, they're like, oh, I don't want to go outside, I'll get dark. You know, all of these excuses. And I'm like, explain to me. And then they explain to me it's because, you know, a lot of the times they, they get a lot of flack from their families mm. or from relatives saying, oh, you need to lighten mm. your skin because it's a, it's a symbol of status and it's a symbol of, um, you know, wealth. And so I, that was kind of my introductory mm. um, lesson on, I guess, racism that's prevalent on our island. And then going to college, um, I took a black experience in the U.S. class. And so we read, you know, pieces from Martin Luther King and learned about Frederick Douglass and so a lot of the themes in the other two readings um, that you mentioned um, were themes that I learned throughout the class, and that was kind of when you learn more of the systematic oppression mm. that's associated with racism. And no, so that's, that's kind of my experience. 
No, thank you all for sharing. Uh, Manny, this, this gives me an idea. We should make some, uh, some fake skin whitening ads <laughs> <laughs> for independent Guahan. Because <laughs> actually, and usually this, this comes up every, pod, every once in a while in the podcast, is that we realize that, that usually it would be you or Nicole Quintanilla that you guys were the darkest people. And then, and then we'd wonder, is independent Guahan like... Like a really light-complected Chamorro group. <laughs> but I guess it's a thing, like, not just with the Filipino community, but even when I went to college and I did meet, you know, black people, because there weren't a lot of black people mm. in public school. They also have inner, like, community, inner ethnic racism Absolutely. based on the color of their skin. Absolutely. So beyond that, though, there's, there's more implications. It's not just the color of the skin. So... I think what the sort of at, at the beginning of the discussion, what you mentioned about learning about the systemic sort of aspects of racial discussions is very key. That studying issues of race, oppression, and power is not like it's not the way my son Akli watches a movie, which is like Hadzi Imam Baba, Hadzi Imam Maulik. My son wants to know who are the good guys so I can root for them. Those are the bad guys, I hate them. It, it doesn't work like that, but that's the way most people treat it, like as we know that, oh man, white people are bad and, and black people are victims. Because then if you think of it like that, then it gives you, as many of you have discussed, it gives you this almost permission to, to be racist in a certain way, to kind of get away with it because somebody, your social studies teacher identified that the, the racists were all in the 50s and 60s. And thank goodness Martin Luther King came with his sword of justice and he, he slew all those, all those racists like their smog from The Hobbit. You know, and, and no, it's not really what happened. I mean, and so thinking about it in that systemic way, because if we think about that, then it's not necessarily about the exact color of the skin or anything like that. It is about issues of power, discrimination. And then it is not simply one issue, but it is always these other issues, right? Like, because for those of you that have been to the US, like your context, your privilege sort of depends, your privilege or your level of discrimination depends a lot on where you are, right? Like how you look, and then where people place you given their own racial framework, their own racial matrix. And so for example, uh, I think it was you who said it, like you haven't experienced a lot of uh, like feeling racism on Guam. Like, I mean, I can definitely say for a lot of Chamorros that's probably, you don't, you don't notice it or you don't realize it here because a lot of that discrimination happens at a larger level. It's not sort of the, the micro racism, sort of the, that sounds horrible, micro, I was thinking microtransactions. It's not sort of the, it's not the, the everyday sort of uh, like interacting with a cop and stuff like that or interacting with, you know, getting denied loans, getting denied opportunities. It, but it's sort of the larger issue of indigenous sort of displacement and disenfranchisement and loss of sovereignty and those sorts of things which are, which if you don't, if your social studies teacher just kind of shows you, look, this is Martin Luther King, he was a good man, and now we're gonna draw, we're gonna draw pictures of him. Like, then it's, it's, it's hard for you to make the jump and think, wait, how, am, how, how is there racism here? Because now how does it work like that? And so, and so getting into this, that's, yeah, I would like to, to think about it in that way. Like, how is it that, when we read these books, it's not necessarily about thinking that African Americans have it the same way Chamorros do, or, or and so on. Who has it worse? Like, one of the things you never want to do is you never want to get into what's called the oppression Olympics, right? You never want to get into that. And so, but then learning, yeah, learning about sort of the, the system, the systems involved. Now, <clears throat> when you mentioned about how uh, people even within ethnic groups will have sort of their own internalized sense of racism. That's one of the things that Baldwin talks about in this reading, is that he, he mentions sort of his, his brother, sort of the father of his nephew who he's writing the letter to. And then what does he say that kind of defeated his brother? He says, 
He is dead. He never saw you. He had a terrible life. He was defeated long before he died because at the bottom of his heart, he really believed what white people said about him. This is one of the reasons that he became so holy. I am sure that your father has told you something all about that. Excuse me, your grandfather. He's speaking of the grandfather. And then, what do you make of that? Because that's one of the, that's one of the difficult things in thinking about social change, radical politics, right? Is there's always a desire to turn it into sort of who is the enemy, who are we fighting for? But then you will always run up to people like your cousin. You'll always run up to people within, your, within those that you define as your allies, your group, your familiars, your, your fellow muggles, your fellow magic users. These are, these are, they're part of your same Pokemon gym, man. Come on, how can we be against each other? We're team blue or what, what are those things? I, I, I didn't play Pokemon Go, but my kids, really wanted to what are the what are the valor there's like team valor team spirit or something anyways i think i'm just naming cigarette <laughs> brands <laughs> but so let's let's think about that cuz he's not just he's not just talking about sort of the system that is denying the system that is depriving that is diminishing he's also talking about the ways in which people in that system perpetuate it they keep it alive by buying into it in a certain way. And he says, he uses the word defeated, right? That it defeats you. What are your thoughts on that? And, and you can make connections from the reading, but also connections to sort of life in Guam. No, well, no. buying into it kind of, for me, kind of gives the idea, if you're buying into it, then you're kind of, yes, of being defeated, but also being complicit in uh, um, accepting, accepting um, uh, the reality that's, uh, that's being framed for you. Um, I'm sorry, what was the question? I don't quite understand. No, no. The, Remember that my questions yeah. are, aren't very good questions. They are <laughs> no, questions really that sure. take 10 minutes to ask, and they're not even clear. And so, Maila Fatatsu, Maila Alam. Was it being defeated by but so, yeah. yeah. So think about, because one of the, so one of the issues that you'll always face as somebody who wants to sort of change something in society, right? And this is something which abolitionists, community organizers, labor union people, environmental activists, Chamorro rights activists, whatever you're trying to organize against, what you'll find is that the people who should be interested will sometimes be those who resist you the most. Right? And so in a way, Baldwin's, when he's talking about this, part of the reason why there is pain is not necessarily because those who are putting the foot on the neck of African Americans, those who are directly benefiting, but because of those who, as he puts it twice, accept the things that white people say about them. Then that's so, it is sort of this issue then that, and, that's, and so that's what he's, he's speaking to in, or that's what he's talking about with his nephew, is he's trying to get him not to believe those things, which have defeated so many in their family and defeated so many African Americans before. Oh. And so, yeah, see, sorry, my questions take a long time to ask, and I'm not even sure what I just asked you actually at the end of it, dispensedzo. <laughs> but here, do your best. I will be back. I'm going to go print some more. Yeah. Okay, you want to go up next? Or, yeah. yeah, I don't really have anything to say. Um, I think the thing to take away. And, and like Dr. Mavak was linking it, it really with any, any group trying to um, promote change or to try to 
you know, bring light to a situation that's been normalized is you have to fight the systemic normalization. And from these other readings um, by Martin Luther King and also by Frederick Douglass, you know, they talk about that. They talk about how racism, how oppression has been normalized in through government, through the church, through all of these sectors that have such a strong influence on the majority. And so when you're talking about you know, trying to get out of the mindset, right? The mindset that this is just the way that I am, this is kind of my life, and I've accepted what people have told me is my destiny. And it's it's trying to challenge that, because even in this piece by James Baldwin, I think there's a part that says, um, you know, even trying to bring about this ideology to, you know, your white, your white neighbor, your white brethren, you have to, shake up their world, their na their order of the way mm. that they make sense of things. And so I think, you know, talking about um, how his father felt defeated was really just because it's not, it's not something that is going to happen, it's not something that happens overnight and it's not something that, you know, unless you have a lot of other people kind of um, supporting you is not going to come to light really right away. And so I think, um, kind of losing my train of thought here. But basically, it's it's having to fight normalcy. Every, racism has been institutionalized from, you know, from, even from this reading, a hundred years prior, you know, Frederick Douglass was still talking about the same issues, you know, the same kind of, we need, you know, there needs to be change, there needs to be change. And it's, it's only really just recycled in new forms, but similar, uh, similar issues. Yeah. Something that? Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. So, um, so the rapper Vince Staples has this thing that he says. Um, I don't know if you heard the song North North, and the refrain goes, "I never ran from nothing but the police." Mm. And he has he's, he's in an interview. I remember him talking. Um, I am part of the problem. You know, talking about like rap music in relation to the black community and the glorification of like drugs and things like that. And it's kind of like we all kind of buy into our own racial stereotypes and the narratives that we tell. You know, like that we're not really told. You know, no one tells us these things. I feel like it's so like deeply ingrained that we kind of like, you know, we what is it, what, what's the word? I don't even like this term, decolonize your mind. But it's like, we kind of oppress ourselves sometimes because we just kind of like, you know, burrow into these thoughts and we get it into our heads. Like, you know, we just are, without, in, 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 in really subtle ways, like we kind of, like, you know, sometimes it's like, you know, we put ourselves down. Yeah. yeah. So two things, uh, just picking up, um, picking up from where what you guys were talking about, um, and also like uh, the the term defeat. You know, like you know, when we when we think about um, uh, activism as uh, you know in in terms of, of war and resistance. You know, uh, defeat comes when you accept. Um, you know. The, the the roll of the dice that your enemy has given you, you know, and with that, you know, normalcy, um, a reluctance to try and uh, overcome your circumstances, and uh, you know, to prove them wrong, you know, and um, yeah, there there is defeat in that, um, in accepting your fate, um, and being, you know, if if a million times you're told that as a person of color you are you're worthless you know, and you'll never amount to anything um, that becomes ingrained in you. And um, I was watching a, a School of Life video about how, like, yeah, you got, obviously you guys are familiar with School of Life, but he was talking about how um, the bad voices in our head, the things that, that tell us, like, oh, your writing is shit, you're no good. These are, these are things that at one point or another has, have been said to us, you know, and these are things that we internalize. So if, if you as a person of color, or if, for instance, like, you know, I'm pretty sure you guys have heard someone say things like, oh, you know, we can't, how can we decolonize? You know, Chamorros are lazy. We can't do anything without the U.S. Like, these are things that other people have told us. And we've been told it so much that, you know, so many of our people believe that, you know. So, and then to um, the issue of uh, identity. And like you said, that Vince Staples uh, um, uh, lyric, um, you know, we, we sort of, 
we tend to to define ourselves um, by these uh, these archetypes, even with um, you know the the term indigenous. When you how do you define yourself as an indigenous person? Is it your um, like the this person who I've become like this person who is outspoken against uh, uh, militarization? against colonization, is this um, something that is inherent to me? Like, is this, uh, is this me being authentic? Or is this me taking up a position um, that is in itself defined by, you know, the, the oppressive system? Like, do I, am I just trying to take up this Angel Santos uh, um, archetype of what a Chamorro is in order to resist colonization? So it gets really, it gets really tricky there, you know. Um, yeah. Anyone else want to piggyback off of that? <laughs> yeah. Mia. Yeah. Or. <laughs> yeah. 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 So go ahead. Um, all right. So this is kind of something that I've been like messing around with in my head as far as like the independence movement and my thoughts on it, and it's kind of been like troubling me is how do, how do I frame this I have this aunt right and she she refers to herself as Guamanian like we're Chamorro right like from a family all the way back and she kind of always refers to herself as Guamanian and she refuses to use the word Chamorro because she is never because she does not in her words she doesn't feel and this is something that I've felt a lot she doesn't she doesn't identify as Chamorro as one of the Chamorro people because she and she kind of has a point, it's like it's been, the culture has been like, so thoroughly like, you know, what's, like eviscerated by, um, you know, just hundreds of years of colonialism. And what percentage of, you know, like how do you even define that? Is it the language? Is it your origin? Because like, you know, so much of my blood is like not that and so much of my condition, and it's like, how do I even, you know? And it's like, I've always been told, like, you're Chamorro, but like, at the heart of it, I can't speak the language, and I don't know anything about the culture, and by blood, I'm not even really that Chamorro, <laughs> so it's like, what? You know what I mean? But in any, but if you put me in a room full of a bunch of, like, you know, everybody else is like, you're Korean, you're Filipino, and you're Chamorro, but it's like, am I? Or even just around my cousins, and what does that even mean? You know what I mean? So it's hard, I find it hard to even identify as, Chamorro, because it's kind of just something that other people tell me that I am. Mm. You know I want to I mean? personally invite you to um, another podcast session. I think we can have a, a very lengthy discussion about these issues that you brought up, you know. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. Uh, just yesterday in my Chamorro culture class, we were discussing that very issue. If you haven't had a chance to read it yet, you should read Angel Santos's The Birth of a Chamorro Nation. It's, it's just like one page. But in it, he has a piece where he basically says, like, whether you're half, third, three-fourths, a quarter, like a Chamorro can still be a Chamorro. And that a Chamorro can still be a Chamorro even if they drive an American car, even if they live in a concrete house, even if they shit indoors, you know, even if they, even if they drive, yeah, whatever it is, you can still be a Chamorro. But one of the... Okay, I don't know how we got to, to this point in the conversation, <laughs> but we can just go with it. But one of the things that's, that's we always have to remember about cultural conversations is that, and I'll, I'll bring this up just because this, this usually happens in my Chamorro classes. If I have a student who's, like from the, from, who's from the Philippines or who's from the Federated States of Micronesia, is that will be, you know, there'll be a Chamorro student who will talk about, you know, I'm so sad because I don't know my language and I'm not in touch with my culture. And then the Filipino student or the Chuki student will look at them and say, yeah, it's so sad that you guys don't know who you are and you don't have your culture and stuff like that. And then everyone will kind of feel bad and stuff. And then every once in a while, if I'm feeling feisty, like if I'm on my period or something like that, then I will look at the Chuki student and I'll be like, hey, wait, 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 wait. Did you come to class in a canoe? And we're like, no. Do you live in a, in a hut? No. You live in an apartment? You live in a concrete house? Oh, you lost your culture. Because that's a house that doesn't indigenously come from your culture. You're speaking English. You're learning tomorrow in this class. Do you know all your traditional songs and dances? 
do you know how to make salt? Do you know how to do this? Do you know how to do that? And they will oftentimes say no, and I will be like, who are you to tell this other student that they have lost all their culture? What is culture just a bunch of practices? Because if that's the case, then a lot of people who say that they are into their culture probably don't actually know much about their culture. Like you, you think about it, if you look at, and part of the problem though, is that every, every family has a youngest sibling, right? And that youngest sibling either gets a pass on everything or they get treated really badly, right? And so in a sense, in terms of racial politics or cultural politics on Guam, Chamorros get looked on, looked on as being the ones that don't have the culture. When in fact, every other culture deals with the same issues that Chamorros do. So even in the CNMI, the CNMI don't speak Chamorro as fluently as they used to or as frequently as they used to. In Chukis communities, they're also not speaking Chukis as fluently as the generation before. Filipinos on Guam, same thing. They're all going through language loss. They're all going through cultural loss. And so um, one, of the things to, one of the things to remember, and Baldwin in, in this reading and in other readings, he puts it very nicely, and in so does Angel Santos in his Birth of a Chamorro Nation, it is important to, to remember that you are human just like everybody else. You don't have to be perfect to be right. Because oftentimes when you are the oppressed one, you have to be perfect in order for people to take you seriously. Like you look at Donald Trump versus Barack Obama. Barack Obama was like super president compared to Donald Trump. Donald Trump, Donald Trump, I don't know, you could probably actually run the United States as well with, a, with some I don't know, shit on a Kleenex, actually. He's about that good at being president. He is not very good at anything it takes to be a president. But you still have like 30 to 40% of the country believing in him. If Barack Obama acted like Donald Trump, because you don't get to do that if you are, as Du Bois put it, a social problem. If you are the one that is less, if you are the one that is supposed to be defeated, if you are the minority, if you're the other. And so a good thing to remember is that Chamorros are just like everyone else. They got cultural problems. They got language problems. They got issues of identity. They don't know where they're, they got to figure out where they're going in the world. There's differences between one generation to the next. <clears throat> and so once we get that perspective right, once we see that what we struggle with, other people have struggled with and still struggle with too, then we can kind of get rid of this idea that defeated the grandfather and others in this family, which is, it's kind of a, sometimes we, if you ever, my favorite place to read this sort of stuff is like in the comments on PDN articles or in social media. You'll find some people, and they are sometimes Chamorro, who somehow believe that Chamorros are the most corrupt people in the galaxy. Like, far more corrupt than sort of Senator Palpatine, who became Emperor Palpatine, who became sort of the leader of, of the empire, took on Darth Vader as his Padawan. Like, you'll find some people who believe that Chamorros are the worst people in the world, and they'll say, oh, because of this or because of that. And if you think about it, you're like, why is, why is it that Chamorros, why is it that somebody like Dave Davis believe these things so strongly? Well, there's colonial legacies, there's racial legacies to that, right? And that's what Baldwin, Baldwin is telling his nephew not to do. Don't believe the things that they say about you. Don't give in to it. Because of your history, you will feel like your grandfather and others that you have to believe it, that that's all you are. It's important to remember that even when slaves achieved legal freedom in the United States, there was still a percentage of them who thought they should go back to being slaves, who felt that we can't handle freedom. Like, we, we, don't, we haven't been educated. We're, we're, just, we're just Africans. We're just slaves. We can't be free. Please give us, enslave us again. There was, there's always a percentage who will believe something like that. Wasn't it that when uh, the, the Guam was transferred over to the United States from Spain, there were a number of Chamorros that went back to mainland Spain because they there felt were. like that was who they were? Yeah. Oh, there were. 
you'll always find something like that. And so, but the important thing is, and this is where sort of decolonization comes into play, right? Is that you have to unlearn those things. So you have to unlearn this idea that you are supposed to be colonized, that you can't ever take care of yourself, that you can't do anything right. Because that's, you know, that's what the colonizer does, right? In most power imbalances, that's what the oppressor aggressor does, right? They come in and they tell, an abuser tells the wife, you can't do things on your own. You need me to do them for you, right? And that's what colonizers do. They go in and they tell people, you know, you guys are so cute with your stones and your houses on top of them and your little wooden boats that you sail places in. And, and oh, look, your, your chili is showing. You guys don't wear clothes. And oh, what is that? That's a stone that you throw? How nice. You guys are so cute. Yeah, you guys basically need to let us be in charge and you need to do whatever we say and then you guys will be, as, as you say, you will be maulig, maulig, bueno. You will be bueno, bueno. And depending on how your experience goes, sometimes people believe it, right? Sometimes people fight and resist. But you can kind of measure your colonization based on how much people believe that. How many? Is it pervasive? Does everybody kind of buy into it? Is it only a minority that believe in it? And so, anyways, sorry, dispensed so. But yes, something to, so, but an issue there to think about though is when he tells his nephew not to believe it, not to believe those things, like, what are some of the things that you wish that people on Guam today wouldn't buy into? Because there's all sorts of things, right? Somebody, somebody in the audience has said rap music. I do, I do acknowledge that there was a time in, where I, in my life where I really liked rap music. And then I had a Chamorro friend who, um, I had a Chamorro friend from Seattle who never really lived on Guam, who said, who said that he loved black rap music until his father said, what the fuck's the matter with you? You're Chamorro, you're not black. And then he never listened to rap music again. <laughs> but, so anyways, so what are those types of things? Because think about it. You can see this is life in a colony, is that there is always this, what Vince Diaz calls it, a veneer. Now a veneer is a fancy ass word for like, like, a, like a, a translucent, a clear layer that gets painted over everything, right? And so this, this layer is something that Fanon talks about in The Wretched of the Earth as well. And it makes you feel strongly about certain things, right? It's why people say stuff like, oh, if we were independent, we wouldn't have aircon, right? Or if we were independent, I, I, can't, I, don't, I want to be a state because I love McDonald's. Right? It's these things that make you feel dependent. But what are the types of things that you wish that people wouldn't buy into? Yeah, that they wouldn't believe? Do you want to break for the class or do you want to? Oh, yeah, let's take a break for the class. Okay. Why doesn't Papa Day total sound so? So, here, let's. Maybe like 10 more minutes. So, go ahead and go ahead and read what I've given you. If any of you want to join the discussion, by the one of the book, Estigisi Senior Maget. Zanyo Mekungok. Gob Zanyo Mekungok si Senor Miguel. Manon Gobati. Oh, here. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I guess one of the things that I wish um, our people would break free of is, yeah, that, that notion of dependency. Um, I think... Uh, or actually, here, I'll, 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 I'll go even further. I wish that our people uh, would break free of the notion that we are not oppressed, that we are not a colony. Um, a lot of the, or a major hurdle for independent Guahan and, uh, you know, every other movement that has, uh, has come to pass over the past couple decades is uh, convincing people in the first place that we are colonized. Uh, people don't see that um, because of uh, the framing of our political status um, at at American uh, using American terms and um, American discourse, American dialect, um, and they fail to see 
our oppression. So that, that would be my response. Oh, um, uh, you said dependency. Um, I, um, the idea that um, everything has to be perfect to, you know, everything has to be figured out, you know, in terms of moving forward, okay, so like, uh, you know, there's going to be, you know, uh, problems just like any any um, place in the world, but as long as, you know, uh, we're moving forward and in, in, uh, managing our future, so um, whether whether there's problems, there's always going to be problems, but that shouldn't be uh, a hindrance, you know, towards uh, decolonizing. Uh, can I just say that I, li I listened to the uh, Fanatu progress podcast like semi-regularly and I didn't realize we would be recording this tonight <laughs> so this is kind of a trip for me so this has been pretty cool uh besides that uh I just um I wish that my mom would stop cooking so much spam all the time <laughs> because I've only recently learned my girlfriend is Filipina and her family eat, I noticed that her family eats really really different from mine and I consume an ungodly amount of spam every single week. Like at least twice a week, I think I eat spam. And it's only now occurred to me that that's probably really, really bad. So I wish that that's, that I, that's my biggest gripe. I think just the one takeaway that I would want people to believe in is that they have a voice and that they can actually say something. You know, whether or not they, they think, oh, it's not my place, it's not my place. If you feel passionate about something, you should be able to speak up and you should be able to educate yourself and get involved. And I think, you know, coming, the, the parts, the bad thing that comes with colonization, you know, with systemic oppression is you feel like you have to just accept the way things are. And I think if there's one thing I want people to believe, it's that, you know, your passion is there to drive you. And it's there to, to help you break away from that. So that's my. Sidus <laughs> Masi. I like I like you guys' answers. I think um yeah. I mean for me what would be a vast improvement, especially connecting to sort of James Baldwin, is that one of the one of the weirdest sort of things about sort of uh internalized oppression, right, is that it, it leads you to fundamentally misrecognize your place in the struggle, right? So, because one of the things that I really hate if, so every week I receive a number of uh, nasty emails or nasty comments, some, sometimes from white people, sometimes from Chamorro people. And what really drives me crazy is that if a, if a white military man or woman on Guam sends me a, a hateful email, I can kind of understand why, even though I don't appreciate it, I don't like it, and a lot of it comes down to them not knowing their own history and them having a lot of fantasies about what the United States is and not wanting to deal with it. But what drives me crazy and makes me want to drown myself in the Marianas Trench is when a Chamorro person will send me an email which sounds exactly the same as that racist white person. So when a, a Chamorro who could be in their 20s or who could be in their 70s will and i've gotten se several of these emails where just like an an older or a younger chamorro person will say something like yeah you know you <coughs> chamorros that you chamorro activists are just like black lives matter you're just lazy and you're all on welfare and it's just like what huh and it's just there's it's just stupid parroting of garbage like but the thing is they're not thinking about their own place like I don't know if any of you guys have ever watched the Dave Chappelle show, the, the skit where they got the white Ku Klux Klan member, Clayton Bigsby, who, when he was fi it finally was revealed to him that he was, that he was black and he, had, he divorced his white wife because she, she was a black lover. <laughs> so deep was the racism of Clayton Bigsby that even knowledge that he was the thing that he hated would not shake his dungeon, <laughs> to use a Baldwin-esque a Baldwin metaphor. But it's kind of like that feeling. And the thing is that, you know, for me, 
And for a lot of us, I don't think that we want to impose our opinion on other people, but you want that the opinions that people have have some connection to who they are, that it have some connection to what they feel and what they want in the world and that they just not be brainwashed or that they just not be totally blind. Because the way that, because I swear, like whenever I get one of those emails, I, I like don't know what to do from, an, from a Chamorro person who sounds exactly like they're a Fox News, really hateful commentator. I'm like, man, how do I, what do I do with this? Like, don't you realize that, that like, if you were on the streets in a city in the United States and you were the darkest person on the street, then the cops would probably harass you. Unless there was somebody darker, and then they would probably harass them. Don't you have that understanding? It doesn't mean you gotta hate cops, it doesn't mean you gotta love Black Lives Matter, but do you understand your place in the struggle? Do you understand how it affects you? And that's what I would want for people to, to unlearn. All right, Nanya, this was just me talking this time, I think. <laughs> Dispensed zoo. Yeah. So, uh, that concludes radical reading. Um, we'll see when we see you guys again. Um, not sure. We'll, we'll have to sort that out. Um, yeah. Thanks for listening. Ihinanganya independent guahan. Para ba inafamatatnya yaman tomorrow. Para tatuli tati idiratota como una shon. Gihilutano. Gini minet gut niha yamanyanata. Dan iguina zata nui famago umta motna. Ina keke fan manungo. Dan na keke fanet don todu i tautosiha. Ni manyasaga gi ininatano. Paratana let fetna izawahan. Ni todu inina senyata. Kosiki senyata fan latna maulik motna. Fanatsu. Hita latmon.